Hi, and welcome to Beyond Prisons, a podcast on incarceration and prison abolition. I'm one of your hosts, Kim Wilson. This is the second part of our two-part conversation with Dr. Rodriguez. In this episode, Dr. Rodriguez tells us what he thinks about Van Jones. We also talk about the problems with community control of the police and proposals for alternatives, a document that Dylan co-authored with Beth Ritchie, Mariam Kaba, Rachel Herzing, and others followed by a brief discussion on the problems with the notion of quote-unquote police accountability and why Dylan believes that police accountability is casualty management. We spent some time talking about the ways that celebrities either help or hinder conversations about policing and why we need to not conflate celebrity with leadership. We close with a discussion on the politics of accessibility. Dylan Rodriguez is president of the American Studies Association 2020 to 2021. He served as the faculty elected chair of the UC Riverside Academic Senate from 2016 to 2020, and he is a professor at the University of California, Riverside. He spent the first 16 years of his career in the Department of Ethnic Studies, serving as chair from 2009 to 2016, and joined the Department of Media and Cultural Studies in 2017. Dylan's thinking, writing, teaching, and scholarly activist labors address the complexity and normalized proliferation of historical regimes and logics of anti-Black and racial colonial violence in everyday state, cultural, and social formations. His work raises the question of how insurgent communities of people inhabit oppressive regimes and logics in ways that enable the collective genius of rebellion, survival, abolition, and radical futurity what forms of shared creativity emerge from conditions of duress, and how do these insurgencies envision and practice transformations of power and community. In addition to co-editing the field-shaping anthology, Critical Ethnic Studies, a reader by Duke University Press, published in 2016, Dylan is the author of two books, Forced Passages, Imprisoned Radical Intellectuals, and a U.S. Prison Regime, published by the University of Minnesota Press in 2006, and Suspended Apocalypse, White Supremacy, Genocide, and a Filipino Condition, published by the University of Minnesota Press in 2009. His next book, White Reconstruction, Domestic Warfare, and the Logic of Racial Genocide, is forthcoming from the Fordham University Press in the fall of 2020 and will be followed in 2021 by White Reconstruction 2. We hope you enjoy this episode. You know, you, you were talking about the reforms and sort of the role that they play in legitimizing the police um, and expanding the, the resources and the power and, you know, sort of this conversation around trust in policing. Um, and I know that you were part, uh, you know, you worked with Mariam Kaba and Beth Ritchie and Rachel Herzing to put together this really wonderful document on civilian review boards, um, which is, you know, one of the more popular reforms that I've seen discussed recently. And honestly, you know, it's sort of the perennial reform uh, that comes up, you know, seems like every year, every few years is this conversation around civilian review boards. I was wondering, um, you know, we'll link to this document in the episode notes because I really want folks to, to read this if they haven't seen it already. But in the context of what you're talking about and some of the points you've just made, can you talk a little bit, um, you know, about what you all are arguing in this document and why you think it's important to make those critiques right now and particularly around sort of that dynamic around, you know, quote unquote, building trust and legitimacy and the disconnect from that with like building safety? Uh, in a community? 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so, so the argument, the argument is, in my view, it, it, it kind of is centered around two fundamental points. One thing is that the way in which um, civilian or community review boards of police tends to actually be constituted involves deep participation from state officials and the police themselves. All right, so, so, so these review boards are generally not self-determined um, by community members and particularly are generally not self-determined by people who are survivors and, um, and active resistors of police terror, okay? Um, they tend to be, they tend to be appointments or at least collaborations on appointments that are made between representatives of community, which sometimes are religious leaders, sometimes they're folks who have aspirations for elected office, mm -hmm. um, sometimes they're, they're, they're heads of, you know, nonprofit organizations and things like that, and, and state officials, and usually chiefs of police or something similar, to, you know, something within the kind of police administrative apparatus. So the way in which CRBs are constituted is already, tends to usually already be a sellout. So, so from jump, um, for folks who are survivors of police terror and who are actively resisting police terror, CRBs, you know, they tend to not have a lot of legitimacy as soon as they're constituted. There, there might be hope around them as actually being kind of empowered with accountability mm -hmm. uh, uh, mechanisms. But once they're constituted, they, they, they lose traction, they lose legitimacy for those folks. Now, on the other hand, what, what, what community review boards also tend to do is um, they tend to re-legitimate police violence, right, by, by, by way of, by, by, in two different ways. In the one sense, it reaffirms this ideological notion that police violence, particularly anti-black police violence, is exceptional to what policing really is, mm -hmm. right? So, so by, by the very existence of a review board that um, may or may not be charged with actually, you know, examining and closely analyzing and then potentially having some kind of mechanisms for um, inducing accountability, for, for, for acts of police violence, what they tend to do is they isolate those acts in a way that, uh, that, that, that divorces them from the systemic everyday climate of terror in which they are embedded. Mm -hmm. um, so so that's, that's part of this, right, is that, is that the folks who constitute them tend to be, you know, at least partially appointed by state officials and the cops. And the political and ideological effect of CRBs is, is twofold. On the one hand, they legitimate the police. On the other hand, they have, no, they have no legitimacy for the folks who are actually trying to hold police accountable for um, their reign of terror and, their, and sometimes for killing people and maiming people, right, the casualties mm -hmm. they create. So, so that's part of this. Now, on the other hand, what folks usually actually want when they say that they're ready to create a, re a review board, what, what they usually actually want is not necessarily a review board. What they, what they actually want is, a number of different things, and this is part of this document that you that you just um, outlined. They want a redistribution of resources, mm -hmm. right? In th that that actually benefits people in their community, that benefits their schools, that creates recreational facilities, that creates you know outlets for people to um, be able to you know engage in collective and communal activity, whether it's art, whether it's dance, whether it's something else. What they want, what they want are um, uh, redistribution of resources and infrastructure so that unhoused people can be more secure, so that people who are mentally ill or mental or, 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 or disabled can be cared for. Um, so, you know, criminalized people will have secure housing so that they are not recriminalized, um, so that people who have, you know, addictions and who have um, other, other medical issues can also be cared for. 
that's usually what people actually want because they know that that's what's going to lead to a much more secure and safe environment around them. It's because when people, when people are, are, are much safer, secure, they're eating, when they're eating, when they have housing, when they have school, when they have recreation, when they have a little bit of fucking beauty in their life, there tends to be a lot less interpersonal violence, a lot less interpersonal exploitation, a lot less people breaking each other's doors down trying to steal shit. You know what I mean? A lot less people shooting each other in a kind of auto-genocidal way. Mm-hmm. Um, so part of, part, of the, part of the document is to try to expand the horizon of possibility beyond community and civilian review boards, right? It's to say that what we're actually talking about here is a need to rethink the infrastructure of policing and the amount of resources and wealth we invest in policing, which, which is killing people and terrorizing people anyways. Um, that's one major part of this. The other part of mm-hmm. this is to say, is to say that um, the police, the, the notion of police accountability is it's virtually until, until very, very recently, right? The notion of police accountability is, is essentially an oxymoron. Um, this is, this is part of what I you know, have been saying. And I'll probably continue to say till the day I die, which is, you know, the rhetoric that we use uh, to talk about what the police do tends to revolve around the phrase police brutality, which in my view is the wrong phrase. Because, because what that phrase tends to do is it reinforces this notion that, that the police violence we're talking about is somehow criminal, that it's somehow outside policy, that it's somehow mm-hmm. abnormal and, and, you know, and, and, and outside the, um, the, the generally accepted um, methods of what police actually do, which they by and large are not, right? For the most part, historically, um, police violence, including fatal police violence, tend to be affirmed by the courts. Right. As well as affirmed by, you know, by by internal review boards, uh, sorry, community review boards, um, as well as internal uh, affairs investigations as, as fitting within policy, you know, justifiable homicide and whatnot. Right. Um, so 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 to the extent that that people are talking about police accountability, they, we need to we need to change that language as well. And we also need to understand that um, the, the analysis of police violence needs to shift so that the accountability structure is no longer limited to, um, you know, uh, uh, arresting a cop, right? right. Arrest, arresting Derek, arresting Derek Chavin, arresting you know all these different folks. Like I understand where it's coming from, right? I know people want some retribution. I get it. I feel the same. I, I'm, if I'm going to be dead honest with you, I feel the same way. I'm like those fuckers can rot in hell, as far as I'm concerned, right? But but I also understand that that putting them, you know, locking them up, putting them in prison, prosecuting them, that actually doesn't accomplish anything around the terms of what I just laid out for y'all mm-hmm. as as what folks in the, what folks in communities, criminalized communities actually tend to want and need, which is more security, more food, more housing, right? More recreation, better education, right? Community, some basic community self-determination and whatnot. Arresting those officers, it might, it, it's going to feel good for a minute, but then you're going to realize, shit, man, somebody else just took that fucker's place. Right. Mm-hmm. Right. Right. So, so this is, so the notion of police accountability, it's, it's the reason it's an oxymoron. It's not just because the state tends to support police violence, right? And reproduce it. But it's also, but it's also because um, police accountability might not be the primary objective, right? What your primary object, objective might actually be to get rid of the police. That's mm-hmm. very different than police accountability, and we need to be clear about that in this political moment, right? Police accountability is 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 one piecemeal, in my view, it's a reform, right? It's one piecemeal reformist measure to try to do what I would call casualty management, mm-hmm. right? Um, uh, and, and sometimes, hey, sometimes that's all we can do. Sometimes the best we can do in a in a genocidal and proto-genocidal climate of domestic, racialized, gendered warfare, sometimes the most important and urgent thing we, we need to do is to try to manage and curb and minimize the casualties 
that are thriving in a specific moment. We're in a moment like that right now, right? And mm-hmm. by the way, it's not just because of the fucking Trump administration. I, I hold Obama almost as responsible, the Obama administration almost as responsible for this in different ways as I do the Trump administration, right? Like this is, this is the climate, this is the condition that, that we've inhabited for, for many, 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 many years, right? Mm-hmm. So, so, so yeah, so police accountability is at best a casualty management strategy, but the horizon of, of what we actually need to be struggling for would, would be, would be a complete abolition of policing um, as a terror apparatus, as a warfare apparatus. So, so yeah, so those are different things. And we need to be clear about that and try to push the horizons of people's visions beyond just, um, you know, creating another review board. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. yeah. That's Absolutely. excellent. And I think too, you know, I, I love this document and I'm going to, I'm going to share it, like I said, in the episode notes, but um, you know, it, it raises another thing and, and sort of what you're talking about raises another thing that I keep feeling like we're butting up against time and time again is that we have more of included in more of the popular rhetoric around these issues. We have people more openly discussing this concept of, you know, systemic racism uh, and systemic violence. And yet their proposed solutions are completely individualizing, right? Like the notion of a civilian police uh, board isn't going to change the structure that is commit that is, you know, uh, fomenting the violence. It is holding and individualizing those acts of violence down to individual people, the bad apples, right? Um, so I, I really appreciate that. And I'll, I definitely want to encourage folks to, to check out this document because, um, you know, again, it's just another one of these reforms that has been around for decades and has been tried, you know, a hundred different ways. And I think it's pretty clear by now what the results are. Um, and, you know, that takes me to another question that I wanted to ask. And you, you were sort of hinting at some of the actors that are behind um, these kinds of reforms and their aspirations and, um, you know, sort of their uh, proximity to power and political power. Um, and I couldn't help but notice I was, you know, just sort of uh, snooping around your Twitter feed um, before the, the As you show. Should. Yeah, uh, well, I mean, I do fairly, fairly regularly, but especially for this show. Um, and I noticed you had you had some words about uh, Van Jones. Um, <laughs> oh, fuck Van Jones. Fuck yeah. Van Jones. <laughs> those, those were the words. Uh, <laughs> fuck you, Van. Hey, if you're listening, Van, fuck you. Yeah. <laughs> My God, Van Jones listening to this podcast. I couldn't even imagine. Um, so, you know, Kim and I have talked on the show a few times and with other guests about this issue of the role, the material role that nonprofits play in this space and how they function in concert with power to achieve, you know, some of these ends to, to maintain this project. And I just kind of wanted to get your thoughts on, you know, not just on Van Jones specifically, although you're free to, to share your thoughts on Van Jones beyond fuck Jan- Van Jones if you want. Um, but, you know, just more in terms of nonprofits uh, in the criminal justice space and the work they're doing. What is the, the material function of nonprofits in your view in this space? So I will, I will do this. I'm going to do, I'm going to do the, the teacherly, the teacherly scholarly type thing here. I'm going to tell everybody to go read the classic book, the indispensable book by one of my teachers from graduate school, who um, I will always be indebted to for all his influence over me, uh, uh, over my thinking, Robert Allen. He wrote a book called uh, Black Awakening in Capitalist America. And it is to this day, the most incisive and um, 
radical and durable analysis of the emergence of the nonprofit industrial complex, you know, in the library. Mm -hmm. um, folks have to get a hold of that book. They need to read it. They need to understand where it is that nonprofits have come from. Nonprofits, and for that matter, NGOs, non-governmental organizations, they, they come from. In, 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 and I and I use this term in in the truest, most rigorous sense. They come from a conspiratorial collaboration between the racist state and owning class philanthropy. Right. That's what non. That's what produced nonprofits was a collaboration between those two kind of. Uh, bodies of violence and domination, right? The state, the racist, the racist anti-black racial colonial state, and owning class philanthropic organizations, right? Um, the, you know, I'm talking about um, the MacArthur Foundation, the Ford Foundation, all those. Mm -hmm. So what 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 Robert Allen walks us through is how it is that through the 1970s into the 1980s to the present, what these folks were chasing their tails doing was to try to figure out how to enhance their counterinsurgency apparatus beyond police on the street shooting and killing and arresting people and beyond FBI's counterintelligence programs. They were responding directly, um, I think, most specifically to black liberation struggle, especially radical and revolutionary black liberation struggle. They were no dummies. They saw the rise of um, radical black struggles. They saw black revolutionary politics emerging. They saw um, the black liberation army doing its thing. They saw incarcerated black people leading struggles against, um, you know, the police state and the carceral state. And, and they saw everybody on the street doing the same, right? So, so there was that. There was, of course, all kinds of other struggles on the street as well. But they were specifically responding to black liberation struggle and the kind of um, uh, antagonism that it, would, that it would create for the um, reproduction, for the sustenance of the United States as a nation state, as they knew it. So they had to figure out what is it that we can do to kind of broaden the counterinsurgency, the anti-black counterinsurgency apparatus, right? The anti-black liberation counterinsurgency apparatus. And what they came up with um, in large part were nonprofit organizations, right? That would sponsor so-called community programs. Um, and, and here's what they did. They, they were no dummies. They studied this shit and they stole the playbook from the Black Panther Party, right? They stole it from the Young Lords. They stole it from American Indian. They stole, they stole all of the kind of radical and liberationist-oriented mutual aid, community-based, community sustenance, community-building programs that radical and revolutionary organizations were gener generating through the 60s and the 70s as a matter of both, as a matter of both community necessity because people were fucking hungry, right? Children were fucking hungry, um, and people were getting killed by the cops. So part of mutual aid meant self-defense and community-based supervision of the police on the street. Um, this collaboration between state and philanthropic, owning class, owning class philanthropic officials understood how effective those grassroots, mutual aid, solidarity, liberationist-oriented labors were for these organizations. And they said, well, fuck it. FBI, COINTELPRO, and COPS, they're doing a good job of liquidating those revolutionary organizations as we speak, right? As they sat in those, you know, meeting rooms with the, the oak desks, you know, and their whiskey out, they, they knew that was already happening, right? They, are, they already saw that there was actual armed counterinsurgency suppression of those radical organizations. So that provided an ideal opportunity. This is what Robert Allen writes about. It provided an ideal opportunity for them to step in, to steal the playbook and twist it, rewrite the playbook. So, so that now um, the infiltration of, of, of targeted and criminalized communities, black communities in particular, would be permeated by different non-governmental non and non-profit organizations that would um, do similar or analogous kinds of things 
um, that really the state ought to have been doing if it was actually, you know, a, not a racist state, right? Mean, meaning feeding people, uh, creating recreational opportunities, creating arts courses, um, uh, you know, creating opportunities for education. So, so part of that was to fill that void that had been created by the repression, the militarized repression and incarceration of radical organizations. And then part of it was a political agenda, which is that once you do that, um, what you can actually do is you can, you can now start to uh, 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 both shape and lead social movement agendas. Mm-hmm. And that's what has blossomed. That's what's blossomed over the last 20, 25, 25 years in particular. I think maybe even prior Absolutely. to that. Is, yeah. that. is that nonprofit organizations actually shape the agenda. They come up with the key terms, right? The term mass incarceration is another one that's been, you know, like a, like a piece of food stuck in my teeth the last 10 years, right? <laughs> Everyone's saying mass incarceration. It's the, wrong, it's the wrong phrase. It doesn't mean anything. Yeah. Right. And the way it's been the way it's been canonized and institutionalized has has been through a, a kind of co- combination of, you know, think tanks, liberal progressive think tanks. It's been nonprofit organizations. It's been academics. Right. They jump on the phrase mass incarceration like it's a thing. And and they generally number one, they generally don't explain it adequately because what they're actually describing is not mass incarceration. Right. And if they use proper terms, they would use terms along the lines of what we've been using in this conversation. They'd be saying things like war. They'd be saying things like carceral anti-black domestic war or something like that. They'd be using the terms of genocide. It's not mass incarceration. But but that term gets canonized and then campaigns get organized around it. Right. Academic courses get organized around it. interventions um, for, you know, so-called at risk and criminalized black and brown youth get organized around that mm-hmm. kind of term. And that's 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 a concrete example of how it is that nonprofits they, they shape the agenda, they shape the politics, they shape the objectives of social movement campaigns, and really they end up not really being social movements, right? What stru- what happens to kind of collective and mass-based struggles if they are infiltrated and um and seized by non- nonprofit organizations of which, by the way, of which of which this fucker Van Jones is a master of creating, right? right. He create, he probably, this dude's probably created more nonprofit organizations than, you know, most people in the history of, of, of the latter 20th, early 21st century United States. Um, but what those organizations are able to do is, number one, they get a shitload of funding from philanthropic, you know, owning class foundation, you know, owning class uh, uh, anchored foundations, you know. Um, so they have shitloads of money, which is always impressive to folks that want to be impressed by that. Um, and then and then they, they hold conferences, right? They hold, they, they do a bunch of fancy shit for the community. They do high visibility stuff. They get into the public media. They, they, um, inundate and saturate social media. Um, they create all kinds of cool looking shit uh, that, that, that does that ideological and political work of laying down what the agenda is. And I keep using this term, but what they, what they do is they end up enforcing and disciplining the horizon of politics mm-hmm. for folks who other, and I'll say this, folks who otherwise would, would, in my view, would be completely committed to the kind of collective, radical, and I would say abolitionist political education, thinking, strategizing, debate, you know what I mean, internal struggle, uh, that, would, that would form a political horizon that, uh, that was far more ambitious, right, far more radical, potentially revolutionary, far more liberatory, and, and, and far more um, uh, uh, conducive to, you know, radical forms of self-determination than anything that a nonprofit organization would ever do, right? What nonprofits want to do is they obviously, obviously they want to fix an existing system. They do not want to abolish it. They might seize and steal the terms of abolition in their work, which is what we see happening, right? But they do not want to actually abolish a dominant system, the prevailing no. system. Otherwise, they wouldn't exist. 
I mean, Otherwise, in New York, they wanted to run the jails. They wanted nonprofits yeah. to run the new jails. So yeah. to your point. Yeah, and hey, yeah. by the way, that, that, that's, that's why I got so, so I felt, I, you know, the way Kim was just mad a second ago, that's how I felt when I read this, um, this, uh, this asshole Darren Walker shit. I just obliterated any chance I'll ever be able to apply for Ford Foundation funding. Speaking of this, Darren <laughs> Walker, the dude that runs Ford Foundation, yeah. he's the one, he put that shit out there. Yeah. He put that shit out there. And then a bunch of people that, you know, a bunch of people like me who at one point in graduate school had a Ford Foundation fellowship, you know, came after him, right, properly, like in a principled way. We, we don't care who he is. We just came after his position, right, saying, no, we, we, we do not condone, you know, your, your affirmation of basically um, an expansion of um, the carceral apparatus by way, of this, by way of this reform in New York. Like that's, that's the prototype of how this shit works, right, is you have somebody mm -hmm. who's you know, the head, the head of one of the largest philanthropic organizations in the world coming out and basically announcing what the horizon of the agenda will be. And so then it's up to the rest of the people to blast them um, and say, yeah. get out of here. You have no accountability. You have no connection to these movements. You don't know what the fuck you're talking about. And yet you're laying the agenda down. Right. So it's, it's folks like that. that are always up front and center um, when, it, when it comes time to, you know, the state, the police, um, you know, owning class, corp you know, philanthropic organizations, corporations, and, and other and other pundits, for that matter. When it comes time to actually try to rationalize, harness discipline, and then engage in the work of counterinsurgency, nonprofit organizations, the nonprofit collaboration with the state, with police, with elected officials is always front and center. And, and again, again, the one who taught me all this is Robert Allen in his book, Black Awakening in Capitalist America. It's all there. Yeah, yeah, awesome. we'll definitely link to that. Um, yeah. Oh my gosh, uh, I'm sitting over here, uh, like just shaking my head, like yes to pretty much everything <laughs> you're saying. Because, <laughs> well, one, I, I'm. Let me just be clear. I've tossed out all of my questions. I'm not even going by that, you know, whatever script we <laughs> had or anything that was going to guide us. Um, and I'm so glad about that. Um, in part because I think there's a much more dynamic way to, you know, to approach it. But um, the several things that you made me think of, right? Um, in part, uh, you know, around um, this, you know, the idea of these uh, nonprofits, uh, you know, having so much power and basically uh, sucking the air out of the room, right? So, yeah. you know, something I hear often, right, especially folks who are either new to abolition or working in a space and, you know, uh, is that they either want to start a nonprofit or they just started a nonprofit, right? Yeah. And, um, yeah. <laughs> and and telling them, well, yeah. maybe that's not, you know, maybe that shouldn't be the focus of your work. And it's something that, you know, I've had people try to push me in the direction of creating a nonprofit. And I'm like, I don't yeah. want to choose grant dollars. Like, I, I want to keep doing the work that I'm doing. And in like, that just doesn't happen. I've worked in nonprofits before. I know, you know, right. I know what, what the cycle is and, and all of that. But um you know, you raised a number of uh, really interesting points, including, you know, um, the fact that, um, or at least you're making me think of um, how people are willing to kind of adjust and acquiesce, um, you know, accommodate, if you will, to these, uh, you know, institutions and basically say that you're doing it under the guise of, you know, well, this is the work, right? That this becomes the work right. of abolition, um, or they're using that term, right? And we're like, well, no, 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 right. that's do you know what I mean? Um, but yeah. the other thing that you, um, and, and this goes along with that, um, is that these institutions perform really important cultural work, right? Because they do, they either get, um, they, they make celebrities out of, you know, 
formerly incarcerated people sometimes. Yeah. Um, and yeah. I think that's really fucked up and deeply problematic and deserves, you know, an episode all by itself. Um, but they, you know, as you pointed out, hold conferences. They, you know, um, have a huge social media presence and teams and all of this stuff. But they combine that with celebrity, right? And everybody seems to want to either be a celebrity or be celebrity adjacent, right? <laughs> it's like, yeah. what is happening here? So, you know, yeah. I... I love for you to uh, say something, you know, um, around that. And, you know, um, if you have some thoughts re regarding those things. You know, yeah, I'll say, I'll say a couple things. One is, all right, so, so I, just, I just came after the whole nonprofit industrial conflict and its role in counterinsurgency. And, and, and I want to make sure to remind everybody, I said the same thing about my own line of work, right? So I'm not, I'm not casting stones at some kind of, I'm, I'm in the same type of institutional logic, which is to say, on the other hand, in addition to everything that both, you know, that, that all three of us have just been talking about, um, I have I have really strong abolitionist, you know, friends, loved ones and others that are engaged with the nonprofit industrial complex in ways that I would see as similar to the way I try to engage the university and this thing we call academia, meaning, meaning that they bring a politics and an analysis to that complex, to that nonprofit world. Uh, that puts them in constant tension in political antagonism with the logic of the nonprofit world. That is something that I think requires um, just as strong and sustained a political, radical political community, abolitionist political community, as any of us who are trying to do this work while maintaining a job in the university and in academia. Like, you have to be accountable beyond the nonprofit structure. We need to build a strong community of support and accountability for people who do enter the nonprofit industrial complex apparatus with, um, with an analysis and a politics that is aligned with, if not, if not, um, if not conducive to, you know, a, a radical abolitionist, black radical, queer radical, you know, feminist, etc. Politics. Mm -hmm. um, it, it's no, it's no different than any other line of work in that sense, which is that the logic of that of that complex is one that is not conducive to liberation or transformation or revolution. But but you can inhabit it and, and kind of re-inhabit it in ways that try to push those logics and challenge the internal logic of that structure. We just need to have a politics around it. That's what I'm saying, right? Mm -hmm. So I don't mean right. to dismiss anybody. I don't mean to dismiss anybody who is, you know, tied up as an executive director or as, you know, somebody who's just working in a nonprofit office right now. I just say that we need to build a politics around what we are doing, um, yeah. an analysis and a politics around what we are doing. I've been, I've been in dialogue with many nonprofit um, organizations that were, at a certain point, we're completely willing um, to face the reality that the politics of their organization were going to jeopardize their funding from a specific um, from a specific body. Uh, there, there was something back in the day called the Prison Activist Resource Center that was based in Oakland, and that's that's the line in the sand that they drew was around support for political prisoners, black political prisoners in particular, and it cost them their funding, and they had to they had to close shop, and that was there was something they they were willing to do. Um, and folks did not stop doing their political work. They went elsewhere to do their political work, right? They, they, they said, this is, this is not. So I think we just have to build a politics around it. It's, you, to me, that's no different than what, Kim, what, what you've done in your relation to the university and so-called academia, right? It's like at a certain point, you're, you say, I'm out. I'm going to do my political work in all kinds of other ways. I'm going to be healthy. You know what I mean? I'm going to find some beauty and some community over here. Fuck this, right? Yeah. So I think that, that, com that comes from a politics. That's not just personal. That comes from a politics, right? That comes yeah. from an analysis. That comes from that comes from a commitment. Um, yeah. So, so I want to say all that, and I've forgotten what your original what your question was before I started going off on 
No, it's, I, mean, I, I think that that's, a, you pretty much answered it. I mean, I was yeah. just asking you to kind of respond to, you know, to, to my uh, comments. Oh, the celebrity something. piece. You were talking oh, about celebrity. Oh, I did have yeah. something to say. Okay. I had something to say about that, Kim. All right. So, so here, here's the thing, right? It's, let me, let me make a, let me make a rough analogy here. Um, when I'm in rooms, okay. So I, like I said earlier at the start of the podcast, um, uh, I, I'm, I'm finishing out my role as the chair of our academic Senate. That means I'm oftentimes the only faculty member in uh, meetings with university administrators and university administrators frequently refer to something they call campus leadership. Right. And what they really mean, what they really mean, what they really mean are campus administrators. Mm -hmm. Okay. And so, and so anytime that phrase comes up, I always raise my hand and I'll say, yeah, I'd like to draw a distinction between the idea of campus leadership and campus administration because they're not the same. Right. Campus leadership comes from all over the place. It does not necessarily mean you're administrator. And I would argue for the most part, the, the most important and, you know, world-changing campus leadership is not in the administration. Very rarely is it people who are in the administration. I would say the same thing about celebrity status in the kind of nonprofit, you know, pundit world, that there are people who have celebrity status and people conflate that somehow with leadership, mm -hmm. right? In, in leadership, I don't just mean leadership in the most traditional hierarchical way. I mean, I mean leadership in the sense of folks who are willing to speak truth to power, Right, people who are willing to, um, uh, uh, to to break with an existing organizing paradigm, right, an existing political paradigm, who are willing to challenge, for example, the marginalization of people with disabilities in particular movements, um, uh, that's leadership for me, right, and that's that's something which is generally opposed to celebrity because once people accede to celebrity status, they want to fucking keep it. Yeah. Right. They want to keep there. It's a man like the thirst never goes away, does it? Right. Mm -hmm. Like once you once you attain something like something, you want to keep that shit. And so for the most part, what people who inhabit that position will do is they'll 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 say and do things that will sustain in their minds will, will be most conducive to sustaining that so-called celebrity status. Um, now, on the other hand, uh, I, I'm all for people who um who gain wide traction, right? Wide constituencies, audiences, people who will listen to them, who will, you know, read what they write, who will listen to what they say, because because they're leaders, right? Because mm -hmm. they are willing to think, talk, and do certain kinds of things. People might call that celebrity status, but it's not the same, right? Celebrity status yeah. is flimsy. That shit is thin. It's fabricated, right? So, like, sometimes people will conflate that with celebrity. It's whatever, right? Sometimes people will say that in a funny kind of way, like, Oh, Kim and Brian, y'all fucking celebrities. You run this podcast everybody I know listens to, right? So like, yeah, you're, oh, that, but that's not what we mean. That's yeah, not no. what we mean though, right? <laughs> we mean what we're talking, what we're talking about, what we're talking about are, is, is, is celebrity as something that does not have the same substance that, um, that, that, that leadership has. Um, so I think what we need to struggle around are the terms through which people conflate that, uh, that kind of manufactured celebrity status with actual leadership and call that shit out without being, without being scared of being called a hater, without being scared of being called a hater. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. Right. Like because some because sometimes because a lot of times the celebrities are saying the worst, most damaging shit, the stuff that is going to set your struggle, your movement and your politics and your political education back years. Right. They will set it back years if you allow them, if you allow them to take on the positionality of being, um, you know, political, thought, cultural, artistic, aesthetic leaders. If you give them that, if you cede that to people who are in that celebrity position, um, you're going to be struggling uphill way more than you already are. So I think that shit just needs to be challenged. 
I'm down. I'm down with metaphorically, um, you know, with in, in the strictly metaphorical sense, you know, kind of deposing celebrities. Well, we they, they need to be interrogated. They need to be held accountable, and they need to just kind of be, you know, put aside. It's like, you know, okay, so so you're a pundit on CNN. That's just what you are. Yeah. Right. You, you right. Not, you don't shape my. You don't shape my thing. In fact, a lot of the shit you say is the opposite. Oh, what I do. You know that collaboration you just had with the Trump administration, Van Jones? Like that shows me what, what, what you are as a celebrity, right? That mm-hmm. you're the kind of leader you are. You are not, you're really not a leader. You're an opportunist, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. You're, the, you're, you're the most prototypical kind of opportunist. And that's what celebrity status tends to um, facilitate, right? Is, is a kind of everyday practice of a very kind of self-engaged narcissistic opportunism. So the nonprofit industrial complex very much is invested in that because that's what, frankly, that's what attracts a lot of funding. Yeah. Right. And I've seen we've seen it. We've seen it happen over and over again, where a particular figure, a particular person um, will, will, will kind of get that kind of traction, will be pushed forward as a, in, into that celebrity status and money will follow. Right. Mm-hmm. Philanthropic money will follow, especially if you can get them onto your executive board and whatnot. So we, we need to be real clear about that. We need to have, we need to have a politics around uh, around, around leadership and, and celebrity that clarifies the distinction. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's I think that's really important point that you uh, highlighted there. I think, you know, the and I I think I've said it before on the podcast that, you know, you have a lot of folks that want to be gurus and that becomes the the focus of their, you know, of their work. It's like I'm the guru. I'm the expert. Um, Yeah, we're, (laughs) you know, having, you know, but. But having that um, that community that you were talking about, I think, is really difficult, um, especially, you know, once someone achieves a certain level. Like, I think that, you know, in in the process when you're, you know, starting to come out there, like having people who are, you know, calling you in and helping you you know, think through um, these various issues and things like that so that um, you're not like I, I, I. find that work. It's not that it's impossible. I agree with you. I think that it's, um, you know, it's much more challenging once someone has that, um, that visibility, um, Mm -hmm. if you will, uh, to kind of, well, well, because, because it's alienating because that shit is alienating because what what it, what it often will do is it'll, it'll create demands on, on, on people that isolate them from, you know, their communities and, and circle, you know, political circles of origin. Yep. And and they get and you get stressed and now your accountability is to, you know, a PR firm or a funder. Yep. Um, and that and that's what celebrity does, right? That's what celebrity status does. Now and that, and then also what it starts to do to you, if that's your accountability, what it also does to you is it politically disciplines you where now, you know, if you're if your homie from that organization you used to be in that was radical and still is radical is telling you, Hey, that stuff you said on, you know, the radio the other day was kind of bullshit. You need to kind of come back to us and say X instead of Z, right? Mm-hmm. But then the celeb- but then the per- person who's in that kind of prominent celebrity type position is thinking, okay, but if I say Z, that's gonna put me at odds with all the people who prop me up into the status in the first place. And you know, it's hard to do that. People are not willing to do that, right? They wanna, yeah. they wanna, they wanna kind of you know, keep the juice that they got because they think they mm-hmm. earned it. Um, so, and, and, and that's, that's what I mean about, we need to have a, pol- the politics is not just about an isolated individual ideological um devotion you know to a platform right or to a philosophy or to a theory by a politics i'm talking about a political community of people who are going to call bullshit out to your face and let you know i mean that's i'll say i'll say that's one thing i'm i'm really um privileged with you know um i'm really privileged to be surrounded by a lot of people 
who call me out, you know, almost every day, mm-hmm. almost every day, right? People who, you know, will say, hey, you got to stop for a second and rethink this, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I'll give you a concrete example, right? One way in which I, I've been I've been intervened on, in which I'm being transformed, you know, in a pretty serious and accelerated way, is around accessibility, the politics the politics of accessibility, right? I think um, I think Kim, you were the one that talked or talked about that um, that Freedom Course that um, mm-hmm. that I that I that I took the lead in organizing a couple months ago to bring Eugene yeah. Medics, Dream Defenders, Dean Spade, Mariam Kaba into a discussion. Well, one of the first things that a couple of my, you know, friends, colleagues, you know, some of whom are for my former students and stuff. One of the first things that they intervened on to make sure I followed was was a principled political protocol around accessibility. Yeah. Right. And they, and they made it really clear: if you're going to move forward with this project, you have to have in place as a concrete part of you know, the organizing and media infrastructure, you know, a, a way to make it accessible to as many parties as possible, given, given, given your resource limitations, right? Given that you may not be able to afford to hire somebody to give line, live sign language, which would have been ideal, but they said you have to have, you know, these other kinds of things in place. And, you know, frankly, two years ago, I would not have thought of that. I, I would have patted myself on the back just for putting the fucking YouTube out. Yeah. Right. I wouldn't, I would not, I would not have thought about doing captioning. I would not have thought about, you know, about sitting there and spending a couple of days doing really close textual editing of the closed captions, making sure that they're accurate and all this other stuff. And, um, you know, and now, and now have now also kind of leading the curating of all the other freedom courses that have come forward. What it's done is it's made it so it's not just me. Now I'm, now I'm telling other people who are doing the same kinds of projects. Yeah. Hey, we have a politics of accessibility here and here's how, here's the protocol we need to follow. So mm-hmm. I'm saying, I'm saying like, this is, it's a small example, right? It's a small example. No, that's, but, a but, but, that's a huge yeah, thing. That's a huge thing. I yeah. mean, I, I, you know, it's something uh, Brian and I have talked about, you know, doing um, everybody's got like, you know, their their webinars now and Zoom meetings and all this stuff that they're holding around, you know, teachings and what have you. And a lot of this stuff is great. And one of the reasons why we haven't jumped into the mix um, in part is because of all of those issues. Right. Like um, right. I did. A, right. I did a. a a workshop, um, you know, or a talk uh, a few weeks ago with um, uh, IWOC uh, in DC. And uh, they did have, you know, they had ASL interpreters, um, they had, uh, you know, translators, um, you know, in Spanish, and I think um, several other languages. And, you know, it's like, it was just, they had really thought about how to put that together. And when I tell you of all the, all the things that I've been invited to speak at over the last several months since, you know, I'd say March, um, it's already, we're July, Jesus. Um, <laughs> it's, that was the only, that was the only space where they did that. The only space yeah. where they did that. And that speaks volumes because obviously I'm, you know, I'm speaking in, you know, largely abolitionist spaces. And, um, you know, when, when I, ask about what, you know, okay, what, what's your accessibility? Um, like what, you know, what's happening here and you just kind of get crickets. Well, maybe we'll do this or, you know, we'll try to get that or, Mm -hmm. you know, we haven't really thought about it. And I'm like, wow, you know, like that's really, that's really disappointing because you're basically excluding a lot of people. I mean, this is the thing, right, is, is when, I, when I'm talking about the kind of, I'm talking about people who, like, love you, who they'll push you forward, they'll advocate for you, you know what I mean? Like, they'll, 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 they'll um, 
encourage and, and empower you to do shit, right? But at the same time, they'll say, hey, your shit is backwards on this particular point. You need to rethink that and let's talk about it more, right? Like, that's what I'm talking I mean, that's, that's, that's an actual fucking community. And the problem is that, see, here's how I would encourage people to think about it is it's not just celebrities, man. Like, if you, if you were just, if you're in a situation where folks are just basically trying to put you forward and, and exploit your, your celebrity status and push you forward and not tell you anything other than, um, what they believe you want to hear. You're basically, you're basically a version of Donald Trump. Yep. You know what I mean? Like you're basically surround. You're, I mean, to be, to be in a situation where you never hear anything that is challenging to you. Um, I mean, that's, that's the worst form of privilege and entitlement that you could ever imagine because it means, mm-hmm. it means that you're in, in my, in, in a certain kind of, in a certain kind of way, you're not, you're not human anymore. Mm-hmm. You're something other than human. You're kind of super, super human. You're something other than human, right? You're no mm-hmm. longer flawed. You're no longer vulnerable. You're no longer in dialogue and communication with people. You're no, you're no longer fighting with somebody. You know what I'm saying? You're no longer arguing with somebody. You're no longer having to correct yourself and apologize for shit. Um, that's, that's what I'm talking about as, as mm-hmm. the kind of necessity of a particular kind of community. And that's abolitionist as far as I'm concerned. Mm-hmm. That's what abolition yeah. means, right? Abolition yeah. means you are always struggling. It means you are always struggling around this and what you're putting forward is is uh uh the most vulnerable way of being human that you could imagine while you're also committed to creating the forms of community that will sustain um the most radical interpretations and iterations of life that are possible particularly forms of life that are criminalized and negated uh in our in our current climate by the civilization i mean that's 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 what it is that i think um i'm committed to and that's why uh that's why i'm talking to you yeah yeah Whew. right Um, we're coming up on two hours and I had one last question that I thought maybe I would sneak in, but I don't know, Kim, if if you had something you wanted to ask or I didn't want to, I can can ask it after you, but I'm also, you know, not pressed. Um, go ahead. Uh, you have to say, Brian, this, this is another thing that, you know, I've seen come up a lot, um, as people are processing, you know, what's going on um, with the movement right now and in this moment. Um, particularly, I think, you know, sort of in the wake of uh, Bernie Sanders campaign, you know, and there's sort of this, um, there's sort of this like heightened awareness of, of labor issues in a way, uh, or sort of, I guess, another way to put it is, um, you know, people th- are thinking about organized labor and labor issues a little bit more than perhaps uh, a decade ago, at least in my from my perspective. And one of the things that I keep seeing come up in, uh, again and again is this conflict in people's minds between dealing with the power of police unions and people perceiving that as being anti-labor. Um, I think police unions, even just the term, I think it really confuses people. And it, lend, it leads people to think of cops like, you know, like school teachers um, and, and to approach arguments against police union power as a right. tax more, more generally on labor. Um, right. And I just I wanted to kind of get your thought on that. You know, what, what's your response to that sort of thinking or your reaction to it? How would you contextualize police unions um, within or without the, the labor movement at large? I have three I have three letters for people. FOP, FOP, mm-hmm. Fraternal Order of Police. So the logic of the policing unit is the Fraternal Order of the Police. It is a blue line, right? They are not laborers. They are not workers. They are fucking soldiers. Make no mistake about it. If we're going to take any of the analysis that we've talked about seriously, they are not laborers. They are not workers. They are paid soldiers. 
That is what they do. They don't create or produce or generate anything that is good. They are people oftentimes, hey, look, and, I, and again, I, there's a part of me that is very sympathetic to the fact that a lot of folks who become police officers are people who are from the working class. They are sometimes the first in their families to have um, you know, a job that has health care benefits. Same with prison guards, right? There's a reason, same with the military. There's a reason why shit is like that. There's a reason why mm -hmm. these apparatuses of warfare, whether it's carceral war, whether it's domestic war, whether it's global war, there's a reason why the main people they target to become their soldiers are people from poor communities, working class communities, and, and increasingly, you know, over the last half century, black communities, brown communities, sometimes even uh, undocumented uh, brown communities, right? Like I know that for a while um, in the 90s, I remember when there was a in pretty intense recruitment, I think it's still going on to this day, a pretty intense recruitment campaign for um, back then it was called INS uh, to recruit Border Patrol from among um, uh, Spanish surname people, some of whom were undocumented, who they actually welcomed into their ranks, right? Mm -hmm. So this is, this is part of the recruitment logic. This is part of the recruitment logic is to, um, you know, they'll go to high schools. My son goes to... Um, what, what could only be described as a vastly under-resourced high school in Riverside County. Um, in Riverside County. Uh, it, it's a working-class high school. It's a brown high school. It has a high percentage of people who, um, uh, who are uh, Spanish's first language. Um, and, and the presence at the high school of the military, of the police, um, and, and, and of other apparatuses that will try to recruit some of these children, you know, right out of high school to join their ranks, for decent paying jobs with healthcare benefits and in some cases with, with you know, union privileges um, is conspicuous because there's a high school no more than four or five miles away, which is um, much more upper middle class high school where that presence is either absent or at least not nearly as pronounced, right? Because those mm -hmm. students are supposed to, they're, you know, in, 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 uh, um, in, in kind of the institutional logic of it, they're supposed to go to four year colleges, right? But the kids, a lot of the kids that are at my son's high school, they are slotted to become soldiers. So I have no sympathy for that. Right. Because because the, the logic of that particular union is one that uh, is invested in, in reproducing um, the kind of protection of the police from public scrutiny, um, the protection of the police from criticism, the protection of the police from accountability. And it's, 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 it's no it's to me, it's inseparable and it's indistinguishable from from the fraternal order police. So I think it's a hollow logic. And I think what it actually reproduces is some of the same um, some of the, are, are some of the same issues that undermined the Sanders campaign to begin with, which is the kind of embedded uh, uh, lack of fluency with um, longstanding issues around anti-black violence, racial colonial violence, um, and so forth, that, you know, frankly, a particular kind of uh, white-centered le white white mm -hmm. or white-leftist politics, it just has failure grasping, or at least failure taking seriously. I don't think it's a failure to grasp it. I think it's a failure to take it seriously. It's a lack of political mm -hmm. will. So hopefully that's a lesson people can learn, um, you know, from, from some of that stuff. But I think, yeah, that's a great example of, of some of the pitfalls of, um, of, uh, of a kind of unnuanced labor politics and unnuanced class politics. Yeah, soldiers are of a particular class, but they're separate. They're not the working class. Right, right. Yeah. Absolutely. That. So, um, I guess I'll, I'll close this out here. Um, where do we go from here? Well, I'll, I'll, I'll say this: I, I'm, I'm not one for crystal balls. Uh, but, but as far as the question, where do we go from here? It's, it's what do we do from here? Yeah. Um, and, and I'll, I'll just, I'll just repeat what I've, I think, started saying to you know friends, colleagues, and loved ones around me. You know, what, what the summer 2020 is reminding us is that everything we fucking do is on the historical record. Mm -hmm. And and in and in moments of heightened turmoil, conflict and movement, 
insurrection, especially, and, 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 and creativity, like the one we're in now, the historical record is really staring us right down, mm-hmm. right? We, we, so everything we do is, is part of a testimony to the historical record, and that is what will judge everything. That's the judgment. The judgment, the judgment of history is going to be incredibly acute for us right now. So um, that means, as far as I'm concerned, a deep collective commitment to a politics of creativity and accountability all the fucking time. I'm not one to try to prescribe an agenda to folks unless that's what they're asking for. Yeah. Um, but, but as far as I'm concerned, part of an abolitionist everyday practice is collective creativity, which, by which I really mean to say collective genius, right? I think that's where abolitionist genius comes from, is from the collective collaboration that is happening under the auspices of being on the historical record. When, you're, when, you're, when you understand the shit you do with being on the historical record, it fucking emboldens you. Mm-hmm. Right. That, that, that should give you a lot more courage than you might have had if you thought you were just, you know, an individual. Right. Absolutely. So the beauty, of, the beauty, the beauty of this kind of moment is, is in a sense, it obliterates the notion of ourselves as individuals. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's one of the best things that can happen in the kind of world that we're um, that, that we're living in is where, where you know, everybody is isolated into their individuality by way of social media, by way of K through 12 education, by way of higher education, you know, by, by way of mainstream religion, by way of media, by way of everything else. When, when people are struggling around the principles of liberation, of autonomy, of freedom, you know, of life, right, of, of trying to, to gra- grapple with what it would take to build an infrastructure that would affirm their lives rather than destroy their lives, that is such a profoundly collective gesture that it humbles you on the one hand away from your individuality, but it emboldens you as part of a collective. And then, and then once you are willing to embrace that and see that as part of what you are living on the historical record, you know, courage and creativity just flow from that. That's what I think is what we do from here. We embrace that, that courage, that collective genius, that creativity, um, and we therefore push the political horizons. We push the vision of where we are willing to go with this period of rebellion and insurrection beyond uh, the agenda points that are being laid down for us by state officials, by pundits, by political celebrities, you know, by the nonprofit industrial complex and others. I think we have the opportunity, and that's what we're going to be judged by in this historical record is to what extent are we able, are we going to be able to push the horizons? of our politics, the horizons of what we think can be done, of what we think can be created now, because now is the opportunity to do that. In a moment, we can be aggressive. Mm. Yes. Thank you. Thank you very much for that. Um, no, thank Dylan, you. I, I can't tell you how much I appreciate this conversation today. Um, no, me too. Really, really valuable. And I guess, you know, I just want to close out. Um, I want to give you an opportunity to tell folks where they can find you and your work and, and learn more about what you're up to. Oh, uh, right on. Um, I think, I think y'all will probably put up the, the links to, you know, my, my social media stuff and whatnot, but like people can reach out to me that way. Um, I'm, I'm totally cool. By the way, if y'all share my email with people out there, please, please feel free to email me as well. I have a Gmail address. It's Dylan Rodriguez 73 at gmail.com. Um, I'm doing shit all the time. I'm trying to do it with people as much as possible. Um, you know, I, I, I enjoy writing. I enjoy teaching. I enjoy talking. So I'm open to any invitations from people to talk and write with them. Um, 
you know, if you have people that are locked up and incarcerated or any of y'all listening are locked up and incarcerated, I, I do my best to try to keep in touch with people, um, you know, that uh, over the years who are, who are incarcerated. So, you know, I'm down for a pen pal. Um, uh, but, um, but yeah, I'm easy to reach y'all. So, um, I'm no celebrity. <laughs> That's a good place to end it. <laughs> yeah. we, we reject that, you know, that, that label, but yes. Um, thank you so much for being here. I have two pen pals that I'm going to be sending your way. Um, so my sons and, uh, I, I know that they would, you know, just can't be wait. I'm honored. Good. I'm honored. Thank you for listening to Beyond Prisons. If you find our work valuable, we ask that you head over to iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts and rate, review, and subscribe to Beyond Prisons. You can support our work by sharing this and past episodes on social media. If you're financially able to support us, you can do so for as little as $1 per month over on Patreon at patreon.com backslash beyondprisons. We recently launched our new website www.beyond-prisons.com. There you will find a Beyond Prisons guide for supporting prisoners during the COVID-19 crisis, including a link to a downloadable PDF in small and large print formats. There's also a section on mutual aid projects that we update frequently and a list of demands that includes a call for the immediate release of prisoners. If you'd like to get in touch with us, you can drop us a line at beyondprisonspodcast at gmail.com. Beyond Prisons is created and hosted by Kim Wilson and Brian Sonstein. Ellis Maxwell edits our episodes and Victoria Nam manages our website and volunteers. The music is by Jared Ware. We'd like to give a special thanks to our many volunteers who are helping us transcribe our episodes to make them more accessible, as well as our donors who provide 100% of the funding for this show. We really appreciate your support. Thanks for listening.